Tune. Andrew Gordon wrote that tune. He's a talented guy. Love that tune. It makes me want to, yeah, let's give him a. I feel like I want to dance after that. Um, this morning we're continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 to 7. And, and we're calling this Living Centered, this series. We spent the last six months um, looking at what it really means to live with Jesus at the center of our lives and um, how we can build in a pattern amongst all the business of life of just continually pausing, centering on Jesus, and then continuing. And so we've discovered all the goodness and the joy and the peace that a life like that produces within us. And so we're going to continue on that theme. But, but over the next few months, looking at this, Jesus' most famous teachings, which 2,000 years on still resound uh, to us, and what we're going to find as we go in week after week is that what, what's at the center of us on the inside has to affect us on the outside. It just does. It's inevitable. And so your perspective or your condition on the inside, your beliefs, your center point will necessarily affect everything on the outside, your relationships, your activities, your ambitions, your attitudes. And this is what Jesus is conveying when he spoke those, these infamous words, the Sermon on the Mount, on that mountainside near Capernaum. Now, who's ever been mountain climbing? Anyone ever been mountain climbing? Do we have it? Who, who likes mountains? Yeah, me too. And so you're in for a treat because there's a strong mountain theme in the talk this evening. I like mountains. And um, around about five weeks ago, I was in the Lake District with my family had a brilliant time. Got to climb a few mountains. One of the mountains we climbed was this one. It's Helvellyn. Now, the great thing about climbing a mountain named Helvellyn is that it sounds like it's been taken out of Middle Earth and the Lord of the Rings and plonked into the Lake District. And so when you climb Helvellyn, you feel like the man because I'm climbing Helvellyn. <laughs> so for me, I did feel like... Actually, the next photo is a photo of us climbing it. I thought of myself as a bit of an Aragorn lookalike, a bit tubbier, perhaps. <laughs> And so I was, uh, I had Gimli behind me and um, was, uh, you got to be careful because my father-in-law's in the room, and, um, and uh, scaled that mountain looking out for orcs. It was just great fun. Beautiful day, incredible scenery, a, an excellent walk. But Helvellyn's not a short walk, at least not for me. Uh, for some of you, it would be. Uh, it's a long way up. And at, at different moments, I thought that I'd seen the top of the mountain, I, I'd seen the summit, uh, only to find that actually there was further to go. 
At those moments when I, think, when I thought I could see the, the high point, I would go a bit faster to make sure I'm the one who gets there first. And so your legs feel a bit lighter. And I don't know about you, but there's a strange thing that can come over you when you think you're getting near the top of the mountain, which means that you look back on all those who set out after you and aren't up quite so high, and you think, they don't know what they're in for. <laughs> They've got so far to come. And then actually, I remember when we were on Helvellyn, we started looking down and, and deciding which ones we think can't make it. It's like, we saw, it's like, oh, look at his walking pattern. He'll never make it. Or look at, she's not wearing the right gear, is she? She'll never make it up there. Several times that happened. And several times what I thought was the summit actually turned out not to be at all. Uh, the mountain was higher than I ever realized. And actually, what's more, the people that were far behind me in the end ended up in front of me, overtook me. I'd been focusing on the wrong summit, a false summit, it's called. Uh, and you can get to certain points on a mountain, you look at other ridges, and your perspective can just be a bit skewed. You think you're higher than that ridge, but actually it's just an optical illusion. That's higher than you. And you think that what you can see at the moment is in the distance, but if you only get to the real summit, you see something incredible, much further, much wider, much more beautiful. Today, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount... On that mountain near Capernaum, Jesus is wanting to take us higher, higher up the mountain, higher from the full summits that we've been on to see something greater. He's realigning our view of God. That's what he's doing on the Sermon of the Mount, realigning what it, what it is to know holy God. So we're going to read Matthew 5, verse 17 to 26. And, and as we do... I want us to allow Jesus to take us to a higher vantage point today. And we're going to look at three views from there, which will come on the screen. Firstly, we'll see the majesty of the Holy One. And then we'll look at the beauty of the Holy Savior. And then finally, the distinctiveness of the Holy Way. So that's where we're going. So Matthew 5, and we'll start in verse 17. I'll read it. It says this. It'll come from the screen. So do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I tell you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The first view we see from the vantage point that Jesus is wanting to take us up is something of the holiness of God. It's implicit within all of the text. Actually, the whole of the Sermon of the Mount is really painting a picture of the holiness of God. At first glance, you can read the Sermon of the Mount and think it's all about us and how we should live. But, but actually, 
it's all about him at its core. It's about God and his holiness, which is why in verse 48 of Matthew 5, Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's all about him. He's holy. God is different to us, completely set apart from us, in one sense, totally unreachable. What we think is pure and right and true is nothing compared to the purity and the righteousness and the truth of God. That's what Jesus is beginning to convey in the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount. God is perfect in all his attributes, perfect in his justice, perfect in his power, perfect in his purity, perfect in his love, perfect in his mercy. He is unapproachable in his holiness, which is why the the old hymn says, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. He's holy. In Hebrews 12 and verse 29, it says that he's an all-consuming fire. Such is the intensity of the purity and the otherness of God. There's no contradiction, no sway, no shadow in him. So no one and nothing with contradiction and sway and evil can stand before God without being consumed because he is holy. He is like the sun. All we can do is try and use picture language to explain what he's like. He's like the sun. The Bible calls him the son of righteousness. If you go out later and try and find the sun and then just look steadily upon it, and before long, you can't do it. It blinds you. You get all flashing lights because your photoreceptors are dying for a moment until they regenerate. <laughs> Side point. <laughs> not, not so important. The brightness of it. You can never get near it. If you were to, tr- if you were to travel near the sun, then the, the intensity of the heat and the brightness of the light is just consuming, and it draws you because of the mass. God is the son of righteousness. He's an all-consuming fire. And so A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, which is a superb book, and maybe we'll throw this out, actually, in the next couple of weeks, says this. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we're capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. God is holy, set apart, other to us. And in around about 1446 BC, Moses was called up a mountain to meet God. Up Mount Sinai, which will come up on the screen. Up there to meet God and to be given the law. And, and Exodus 19 describes what happened when Moses ascended that mountain. Talks about a storm, like what Bill was saying earlier. 
There's thunder and there's lightning that came out of nowhere and there's fire and there's smoke and then all of a sudden there's the sound of trumpets which gets louder and louder and louder, Exodus 19 says, such that all of the people of Israel surrounding the mountain at the bottom were trembling with fear. I mean, can you imagine being there out of nowhere? Fire, smoke, thunder, lightning, tr- trumpets. How, how fast would your heart beat? This isn't make-believe. This happened. This is reported. It's the holiness of God. He's an all-consuming fire. And Moses, having encountered God on the mountain, came back and literally his face was glowing. Like, you didn't need to have a torch because Moses was there and his face was glowing, although he put a veil over it. And at the bottom of the mountain, when Moses was meeting with God, all the people were warned, don't get too close, don't push each other, don't, don't let anyone touch the mountain lest you die. You can't get close to God, he's holy. The law given to Moses was from God. And it still is from God. And it reveals the holiness of God. And so Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount that not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Not a jot, not an iota. That's in the English Standard Version where it seems very American. (laughs) Not an iota. The law is immovable. It is established. It is holy. Jesus had not come to abolish the law. Not at all. He is not in the Sermon on the Mount near Capernaum, correcting the Sermon on the Mount of Sinai. The, the, the Sermon on the Mount of Sinai was the giving of the law, and it was terrifying, but Jesus isn't coming to correct that. There's no disconnection between Old and New Testament. God is not different in the pages of the Old to the pages of the New, though sometimes we can be tempted to read it that way. He's the same. Jesus hadn't come to correct the law. He'd come to reveal it. He'd come to correct a false interpretation of the law, actually. In this passage, Jesus is showing that people had been dwelling on a false summit for too long, and they thought they'd seen it, but they haven't seen anything yet of the holiness of God. They'd settled at a lower point. So Jesus says in verse 20 that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will never enter heaven. I cannot overemphasize the impact of that statement. Because the Pharisees, I think I've got a picture of a Pharisee. Yeah, there they are. Well, these were holy men. (laughs) These were the guys who everyone else was a little bit scared. I mean, I'm scared of him, but these guys were a bit scared. These These were the ones who were professional law keepers, professional law enforcers, the best. They were the ones you were afraid of kind of getting too near them in case they spot some imperfection. And boy, did they love to spot imperfections. But here on the mountain, Jesus proclaims that the Pharisees are standing at a false summit. They've not ascended the mountain. Why? Because they don't teach the law as it was given. Jesus is saying it's higher and further and more intimidating. They're preaching the letter of the law, but they're overlooking the spirit of the law. Why? Well, the, the Pharisees had reduced the law such it all became about what you should and should not do and nothing to do with the position of your heart. They'd presented the law such that it was all about being seen to be doing the right thing. They wanted to be seen as being the perfect ones and then spotting all the imperfections and all the other ones that they could see. 
without a thought of the position of their heart. And so they loved to show that they were fasting. And somehow they kind of sucked their cheeks in to make it look like they'd been fasting. And they loved to show everyone that they had given 10% of every herb and spice. Becky and I got given some sort of herb yesterday. I can't remember what it was. 10% gods. They loved to do that. They loved the places of honor. And they love to look at those who, like the tax collector, who's come into the temple of God. I'm glad I'm not like this man. These are the Pharisees. For them, righteousness was all about outward appearance. It was all about the outside. Forget about the in. For example, the command, thou shalt not murder, they'd reduced to it simply being about taking a life. Whereas, as we'll go on to see later, there are many ways that you can kill a man in your heart. Many things you can do to someone to destroy them. And the Pharisees were guilty of that because they were destroying the people by putting heavy burden after heavy burden and not caring whether they could do anything to, to carry it. The Pharisees were misrepresenting God and there's no more serious charge than that. They knew something of God's holiness. Yeah, they, did. they knew something. They knew about a thick curtain in the temple, which meant that people couldn't get too close to God. The Holy of Holies, that side of the curtain, everyone else this side, well, in fact, only the priests, because everyone else is right down here. They knew about the curtain. They knew something about the distance of God, but they didn't know him. They didn't know him. Their hearts weren't his. They didn't know his word. They made it suit them. So they redefined the law by interpreting it according to the letter and not according to the spirit in order to justify themselves. I wonder, do you do that? Do you do that? Do, do, do you read the Bible like that? It's possible to read the scriptures in such a way that chooses a false summit, that, that, that chooses to justify yourself. I think we're all in danger of it. I am. Do you, do you justify what you want to do by taking a bit of the Bible out of context or by saying a little bit of the Bible, actually the specific context it was written in doesn't apply to me, or by saying the Bible's silent on this matter. And so you read the letter of the law and completely overlook the spirit. Do you say things like, I know the Bible says you should love your neighbors, you love yourself, but you haven't met my neighbors. And the Bible also talks a lot about justice for the oppressed and their music is so oppressive and I should have justice. And do you do that type of thing? Or I know the Bible says you shall not commit adultery. I'm sure we'll hear more about that tomorrow, next week. But it's a bit silent on whether I can flirt with this person in the office because actually I don't mean anything by it. It's not causing any harm in any way. It gets me noticed by the boss because she's the one I'm flirting with. Do you do that? <laughs> That was a rhetorical kind of, <laughs> not me. <laughs> Becca, if you're listening to this. Proverbs 16, verse 2 says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. It's just a, there's a way that we can be so self-justifying in the way that we look at the scriptures. The Lord weighs the spirit. Are you interested in the spirit of what God's bringing to us? Jesus is interested in our hearts, not our superficial compliance. He wants to take us higher from this full summit. Higher. Shines a light on our hearts. Do you know, um, most of you know that I'm a doctor. Love being a doctor. God's, God's called me to do that. It's one of the things he's called me to do. 
One of the things you have to be as a doctor is really good at washing your hands. It sounds like it's simple. It sounds like well, it's the easiest thing in the world to do. It's actually quite difficult. <laughs> Maybe it's just me. I find it hard. Um, you, there's all sorts of techniques for washing your hands, okay? And actually, I, I often do this, and then my, my, my uh, doctor colleagues will say, you're such a geek with your hand washing. I'm, like, I'm just trying to do the best I can. <laughs> Every now and again, we have to do this exercise where you put this like, gel stuff on your hand, okay? And it kind of sticks to all the grub. And you can't see it, it just sticks there. And then you're told to go and wash your hands. So you're doing all this stuff, and, you know, like scrubbing up type thing. And then you come and you have to put your hands underneath an, an illuminous light. And the light shows up where there's still leftover dirt. And it's kind of, that's what it looks like. And you just like, no matter how hard I scrub, it always gets, there's always a couple of spots. Doesn't matter how much skin I can get off. Do you know the, um, don't dwell on that. The, <laughs> the holiness of God in giving us the law revealed something of our unworthiness before him. Just shows us that we've got dirty hands before him. Who am I that I can come before the Holy One? To stand in his presence is to be completely undone. Ask Isaiah. Isaiah, in the presence of God, says, Woe is me! I'm ruined, I'm lost! For I'm a man of unclean lips, from a people of unclean lips, and I've seen the King, the Lord of glory. Ask Peter when he realizes who Jesus really was when he was fishing. He just falls on his knees before him and says, Away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinner. In the, in, in the presence of the holiness of God, dirty hands. Ask Moses, who had to hide in the cleft of the rock up the top of the mountain as God's glory passed by, or else he'd die. You can't see God and live, the scriptures say. Ask Paul, who, encountering the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, fell to the ground, emptied of his pride, blinded by his holiness, couldn't see. He said, Lord, who are you? God is holy. The Psalms say that his righteousness is like a mighty mountain. He's holy. Do you know this? Do you revere him? Are you over-familiar? One of the things I love to do is stargazing. I really just love to look up at the stars and take it all in. Oh, there's a shooting star. Because the, 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 the universe is so big and so incredible. And so I stand there and I just, I'm like in awe of it. I used to do it loads before I got married. And certainly before I had kids. Um, and it would, you kind of feel small when you see the vastness of the universe. Well, I remember doing this one, one evening in my first year at university, just taking it in, like, wow. That's, wow, God. Wow. And um, a friend of mine called Icky, who I was living with, he was, um, was a friend, he was a, he was a Muslim, and um, we, we got on quite well. Uh, he, finally, he found life hard, actually, because he felt like he was nav- never able to quite hit the mark. He smoked a lot of pot, um, and he kept on failing his exams, and he, f- he lived with this pressure of, I've got to be better. And he saw me one this evening, like looking up at the stars, and he just says to me, Mike, what are you doing? He must have looked a bit odd. Um, and just looking up at the stars, aren't they beautiful? This is incredible. And literally he said to me, Oh, I, I can't look up there. He says, I know one day I'm going to go up there and meet God. It terrifies me. Because there's a sense of his ah, 
unworthiness before God. He just knew he was a man with dirty hands. He'd seen something of the majesty of the Holy One and completely missed the beauty of the Holy Savior. So in that moment, I got to speak to him a bit about Jesus. And Jesus on this vantage point shows us a a different perspective, the majesty of the Holy One, but also this vantage point of the Sermon on Mount shows us the beauty of the Holy Savior. Let's look at him. See, here on the mountain, in this sermon, the beauty of Christ is seen again because when he describes the perfection of the Spirit of the law, he is describing himself. He's not come to abolish the law, he says, but to fulfill it. He is the fulfillment of the law, the embodiment of the law. In him, there was no contradiction, no shade, no inner warring. He was perfect. So when Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect, he, he is perfect like his Father in heaven. Impossible, you say. Well, he's the Son of the living God. He's from above. In him, God came among us. Not in fire and in smoke and in thunder and in lightning, not in unapproachability, in flesh. Men rubbed shoulders with God, the Holy One, the perfect one on a mountainside. Closer than you ever thought, God with us. In him was no sin. In him was no, no wrongdoing was found in him. No one could He's perfect. He's God, holy one. And his holiness was seen on a mountain too. First on the Mount of Transfiguration. You find it in Matthew 17. Jesus is walking up a mountain with his three friends, James, John, Peter. This is any old, Helvelin, any old mountain. Then all of a sudden, amongst all the dust and the dirt and the stub toes, Jesus just shines brighter than the sun before them. It's like without any warning, it seems to happen. They're there, and then all of a sudden, Jesus starts, it's like this kind of comet and this huge brightness of the glory. And something of his holiness is revealed in that moment, and it's bright and it's intense, and they fall to the ground. And, and then the, the, the voice of the Father comes and says, this is my son. And the presence of the Spirit comes in a cloud, and there's this wonderful trinity moment and jesus is revealed as holy and his friends are like what should we do should we build them some tents his holiness was seen though on another mountain too on the the mount of crucifixion golgotha see on that mountain this son of righteousness that's who jesus is was lifted up was lifted up on that mountain, nailed to a cross, the son of righteousness experiencing ultimate darkness. Himself, please don't ever get over this. You might have heard this a million times. Himself, bearing the penalty of the broken holy law that we'd broken. Himself, himself absorbing the wrath of God. God does have wrath against sin. Let me describe what it's like in the words of Tozer. Tozer said, God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. He hates sin as a mother hates the polio that would take the life of her child. So on the cross, the wrath of God is poured out against the breaking of the holy law. 
And Jesus willingly and in partnership with his Father and sustained by the Spirit bears the penalty on the cross. In doing so, he absorbed God's holy wrath. He destroyed sin on the cross so that sin would not destroy us. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. It blows my mind. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The son of righteousness, the holy one, perfect, knew no sin, became sin on that cross. All of my breaking of the law, I can't tell you how many times I've broken the holy law. I'm a sinner on him, so that me, Mike Blaber, would become the righteousness of God, clothed in his perfection, Christ alone, cornerstone, dressed in his righteousness alone, I will stand. My anchor holds within the veil. What's that even talking about? The veil, remember, that big thick curtain separating man from God, torn in two when Jesus was crucified. Our anchor holds within the veil so that we can come to God. Bridge the gap. He is holy, poured out for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He is beautiful beyond description. Have you seen the beauty of the Holy Savior? Do you marvel at him? Do you love him? Does he move your heart? My chains have gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. Like a flood, his mercy, not wrath anymore reigns amazing love and ending grace he's the son of righteousness and he's risen amongst us with healing in his wings i would love to tell you about another mountain i've not got time hebrews 12 talks about now you've come to mount zion to the holy city to to the temple by a new and living way by the the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word you've come to god there's another mountain for us to ascend don't be satisfied with a full summit There's more of God to know. If you say, I surrender, I want more of you. He wants to bring us higher, take us further, show us more. He is holy, captivating. He wants all of us, our hearts. Have you come to him? There's invitation to today. Maybe for some of us, you're feeling the weight of the Holy One and the exposure of dirty hands. Jesus calls you to come. And repent to turn from that and now to see the beauty of the Holy Savior and be dressed in him, clothed in his righteousness alone and enjoy God, not fear him. Yes, revere him, but enjoy him. Are you over familiar with God? Don't get over familiar. Let it be your ambition to know the friendship and the fear. The, 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 the Abba Father, my Father, as well as the holy God. What is man that you're mindful of him? But you are. At the vantage point, we see the majesty of the Holy One, the beauty of the Holy Savior, and lastly and very briefly, the distinctiveness of the Holy Way. We now get the adventure of following after him. He is the way. And as we see Jesus more, and as we perceive his beauty, and as we spend time with his presence, and as we get to know him better, We become more like him. You become like the ones you most admire. My my daughter, Chloe Grace, she goes to the nursery. She just loves her friends there. She comes back. I can't understand a word she's saying. She's got the thickest Brummie accent. 
because she wants to be like everyone else. That's how they speak. Why would she want to speak like daddy? He's boring. (laughs) (laughs) Biggest agreement of the morning. (laughs) Become like the ones you spend time with. Never going to say you're a good man again. (laughs) Not talented. (laughs) Not not a good song. (laughs) What are the distinctives of this holy way then? Well, how does it relate to the command, thou shalt not murder? Well, the distinctiveness is this. It's primarily about the heart, not the outward appearance. It's the inside out. It's getting the right perspective, the, the, the right condition, which affects the outside. So if anyone's angry with his brother, Jesus says, if anyone calls his brother racker, that means worthless fellow. If anyone calls his brother a fool, he's in the danger of hell. Why? Because all those things are hellish. They produce death. They come out of bitterness and animosity. They flow from a heart that's got nothing to do with the holiness of God because those things are full of contradiction, full of shadow. He's full of light. In him, there's no darkness at all. There is no one who's worthless. All created in the image of God. All the Son of God given to them. If they'll only receive. So he calls us to be like him. Givers of life, not takers of life. And so there are many ways that you can kill a man, or kill a woman, in the way that you are towards them. That's the spirit of the law. How? Well, you can destroy someone's reputation by spreading rumors about them. You can destroy a person's confidence by putting them down. Oh, you'll never do that. Ah, you're not good enough. You can, and we're really good at that in our culture. Like, you know, a few weeks before the World Cup, Wayne Rooney's not world class, not world class at all. He starts reading all this stuff in the paper. You can destroy someone's identity, harboring harsh attitudes towards them just because they're not your kind of person. You know, you kill their identity. Kill someone's hopes you really think you should go for that position? You can be judgmental, looking down at others. They're not like I am. You don't know how early I got up this morning. Oh. Bitterness, holding grudges. See, sometimes people hurt us. They hurt us. But, but we hold bitterness against them and, and fester on hatred and on, of anger in them. Then it, it, That just goes on hurting us and kills them. Whereas God, the son of righteousness, Malachi says, has risen with healing in his wings so that you can be free from all that. All those things have nothing to do with holiness. They don't bring life but death. Is there anyone you can think of that you're killing in your heart? Any, any, anyone's reputation or hope or confidence you're destroying? Repent. Stop. See the holiness of the majestic one. See the the beauty of the Holy Savior. Receive his grace swiftly. Repent, feel the conviction. Receive his grace and righteousness. And then walk in his purity, the distinctiveness of belonging to him. Which means probably going and finding those people. Sometimes it's just dealing with it in your heart because they can't be found. Other times it's going and finding them and saying sorry. And, and, and determining to bring life rather than death. What does that mean? Don't destroy, defend their reputation. Don't crush their confidence, build it up. Be encouraging. Value someone's identity. Sustain their hope. Prefer 
them over yourself and be reconciled and then you can come and worship God without having to leave the altar because there's so much contradiction. He loves us. He invites us up the mountain. Don't, go on a, don't stay on a false summit. Come to him. See the majesty of the Holy One, the beauty of the Holy Savior and live in the distinctiveness of the Holy Way. Shall we stand and Andrew and the band are going to come back and lead us in a song to respond. As we stand in the band, come. Why don't we just, um, why don't you just where you are, just close your eyes. Again, this is a means of fixing the eyes of our heart on Jesus. Being able to say in this moment, here with my friends, I focus on you. <laughs>